our scripture reading this morning is from Mark, chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Unfortunately, I don't know the page in the Red Pew Bibles. Could everyone stand as we read? When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell on his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowded against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear told him the whole truth he said to her daughter your faith has healed you go in peace and be freed from your suffering may god add a blessing to the reading of his word you may have a seat i am going to share another story of a close encounter This is from a book called The Best of the Story uh, by Bernice Bichon. He was a vice president of World Gospel Mission for several years. Um, the story goes like this. Mrs. Alice Polzine of Wisconsin had a question for Phyllis Cushman, who was on furlough from Bolivia with her husband, David. Phyllis, asked Mrs. Polzine, were you and David facing any type of crisis in June of 1973? At that time, I had a very heavy prayer burden for you. And David, I prayed and prayed until the burden lifted. What were you facing at that time? It was not difficult for Phyllis to remember what she and David had faced at that time when they were first-term missionaries in Bolivia. While David was away helping to construct a rural church building, their six-month-old daughter had become ill. Upon David's return, the worried parents noted that their daughter's eyes would not focus and tended to roll back in her head. She was not taking food or liquid. They carried the infant to a Bolivian doctor, and the diagnosis was meningitis. He, got, he gave shots, prescribed additional medication, hoping that she would be able to take nourishment, but she could not. They saw no change and feared severe dehydration. At that point, the doctor told them there was nothing else he could do. Sunday evening, while Phyllis went to church, David stayed with their daughter. She was still not able to take nourishment, and the situation undoubtedly was extremely serious, for the doctor had told them to take her home and make her comfortable until she passed. David's prayer was focused as he said, 
God, help this, your daughter, your baby, to be able to take this bottle. The anxious father offered the liquid, and she was able to drink it all. As the anxious moment passed, David felt that someone was helping him in prayer. Soon, his baby daughter recovered. Today, you ask, why am I reading this? Close encounters, right? The thing is, David and Phyllis are my mom and dad, and I was the six-month-old baby. Jesus still touches. Amen. Stand for the benediction. I knew some of that story. I didn't know it the way she uh, just read it. That's amazing. Close encounters. <laughs> in our story this morning, it's a time in the life of Jesus where He emerged. He was emerging, though, differently than any other leader in his day. There were many leaders that were emerging with the power of the military force behind them from Rome. There were Jewish leaders that had emerged, for wealth was theirs to have, and intelligence and education. Men were the only voting members of any culture, in and about the area of biblical times. And then Jesus came strolling along, doing some strange things. He, he sought out sick people and he healed them, and even if he didn't seek them out, they sought him out. <laughs> he even went into the area that we choose not to go into today, for it's kind of spooky and we're not sure what it is, but... Jesus kind of just went up and cast out a bunch of demons. Sometimes they'd find their, their home and a bunch of pigs and run off the cliff. <laughs> Imagine what that looked like that day. I mean, that, talk about humor. That one, that would crack you up. And in the midst of all of that, he preached about a kingdom, a kingdom of God that was present and yet to come. And those were strange messages, for he spoke with an authority that no one else really had. And then in the midst of all of that uh, brilliance and healing and touch and personal side to him, he'd sit down for a while and just talk with folks. I call it fortune. If I were to design a community, I would put a porch on every house. I would never put a garage where you could actually enter the garage and enter your house through the back, like in our case. I would require people to enter through the front of their house and sit on the porch for a while. Privilege that I had this week and some study and reflection and thinking about this message, I... I had to spend some time just praying in, in memory. And uh, 
as I sat on my porch, folks walked by. It's amazing. Sometimes they actually will look up and note that there's, there's, there is this fine-looking young man sitting in his rocker with a cold drink there and a Bible in his hand and waving at them or saying, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Jesus did that. Today, probably he would hit Old Town Covina, probably sit at Starbucks a while, listen to the conversations of the people about him, and then, and then maybe join in. I have an assignment I give my students at the university, seminary students, and the assignment's this. You're to go spend at least two hours sitting in the local hangout, wherever that is, a restaurant, the, the coffee shop, park, wherever it is. And you're to observe people and listen to them. Don't talk. This, you have an absolute no-witness zone. Keep your mouth shut. Watch people. Listen to their conversations. Note who meets with whom and, and where the young are and the middle-aged and the older and how does that all mix and if it's at a Starbucks, note how the people behind the, the counter, the barristers, how they know things about the people that come in that are regulars. Pay attention. Then they come back to class and they tell us about their observations and, and they will tell us some of the conversations between maybe a couple of ladies about their children or uh, a police officer might have come in and someone asked them a question about their ticket. That's usually what happens. Or, of course, a firefighter comes in and everybody just bows down and calls them holy. It's the contrast of values. Jesus did something strange, and it's recorded in the verse that we call our theme verse. The first part of the 14th chapter of the first chapter of John. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. It's, it's really what we operate here and what I operate with and, and you. It's, uh, it's important to realize that he chose to become like all of us and yet not. He be, chose to become one who had to hang out in the neighborhood and, and had to eat a couple times a day and had to sleep and had to do all the things that we do and work. Yes, he had splinters in his hands. <laughs> he was no doubt a good carpenter, but I've never known one that didn't get a splinter or two. Sometimes they're missing a finger or two. You'll always note what someone does if you watch their hands. And so Jesus was hanging out. Before I get into the whole text thing, I want to take you on a little trip. It relates very much to the scripture this morning. I want to take you for a field trip about 10 minutes from where we are today. We're going to drive together, and maybe it's just a couple of us. We're going to go visit someone. So come along. We're going to head out west, jump up to the 210 and 
go over to Duarte. Slip down Buena Vista, make a left on Duarte Road, and come in front of a large hospital, not normal hospital, but one with a huge garden area and expansive space. We're going to turn into the city of hope. On the right, there's a rose garden, second to none in anything around here. It's the most beautiful of all. And then we're going to try to find a parking place. You know, people that are admitted there are called patients. And if you look for a parking lot, you'll become a patient. And so we'll find one. I happen to have a handicap, so we got one of those better places. We slip out and walk through the main entrance into City of Hope, and there's a huge fountain just there. And the water is spouting, and it's, it's the, uh, there's a mother... And a, and a dad and a baby sculpted into the fountain. And as the water flows, there's a peace about it, and there's a serenity, and, and there's act, activity, and there's, there's a resource of, of healing that seems to have already started to take place. We go into the front door, and there's a man there, and he has a kind of a light blue smock on. He greets us with a smile and asks if he can help. And we say, yes, we would like to visit the hospital. We, we have a friend there. He gives us some direction. And what we don't know about the man in the blue schmock is, no doubt, as a volunteer there, he himself may have been a patient there or a loved one in his family or someone he knows. Because it seems as if when those things come our way, we tend to get involved. So there's a story behind everyone that stands or sits behind the desk that wears the blue schmock. Well, we try to find our way around, probably have to ask two or three people how to get there because hospitals are designed by mice in a maze. That's how the architects do it. They watch a mouse run around and then they design the hospital. I have never been lost more times than visiting someone in a hospital. It makes no sense. We finally get to the new hospital, the Helford Hospital. It's beautiful. Got to go to the sixth floor, so get in the elevator and go up. And we enter from the sixth floor elevator into this huge atrium. It's massive. And it overlooks the entire San Gabriel Valley and the mountains and the mountains, as, if, as they are today, are snow-capped. You look out, and it's one of the most breathtaking views that you've ever seen. And then you go into the room area, and you notice the nurses, they're all busy. Their heads are down at their desk, writing and recording and paying attention to the detail of so many people's health. We know which uh, number room is. They told us downstairs, and we want to be sure we get to the right one, and we double-check and even check with the nurse. said, yes, that's where you want to go. And so we go to the front area, and there's a sign there that says isolation, 
And in that sign of isolation, it tells us that we have to prepare ourselves to enter that room, for this person is susceptible to any germ. Their immune system has been depressed through the chemotherapy and the various other things that are going on in their life for their extreme illness and their, their critical, the critical nature. So they require us to scrub, put a hat on, put a mask on, put a gown on, and put little booties even on our feet so we don't track in anything. And We go through that entire preparation and then we enter the room. In entering the room, one of the realities hits us very diff- in a most difficult way. We see a person in a bed. There's only one in the room. And we notice all of the different bags up on the stand. And we can see one of them that is morphine, giving a little peace to a very, very ill person. We look to the person in the face, and we don't recognize her. I wonder if we're in the wrong room. Is it, is it our friend? It can't be. We know her as a vital, living, dynamic, energetic, full-of-life person, and that's not who we're looking at. She's destroyed by illness and pain and medication. Her face is bloated and she's bald, has not a hair on her head. She's asleep. There's a, there's a chart up on the wall that says, pain, one, two, ten. Hmm. What would it be like to live somewhere where every hour your pain is measured on a scale of one to 10. And sometimes having to respond, it's a 10. That's our friend. They called this place City of Hope. Is there hope? To stroll down those thoughts for me is somewhat difficult, but not nearly as difficult as it is for me to stroll down that path thinking about some that I have been there with. Now, let's look into our story. (laughs) The woman that we're talking about in this passage, not Jairus, not Uh, the death of his daughter, but the story that sort of uh, fits its way in. It was not the plan. There was an encounter with this man, Jairus, with Jesus, a leader of the synagogue, and Jesus was on his way to go see the daughter and no doubt heal her or whatever was needed, and there was this interruption. How many times are we interrupted? If I have a plan to be somewhere, God's interruptions come. (laughs) And they require something of me. And you know, I am a program guy. I'm a busy man, aren't you? I have a lot of responsibility, don't you? I'm important, am I not? 
that is, that is unimportant until I visit my friend. Yeah, I'm important there. But I'm not important because I have a PhD or status or money. To her, I'm important because I'm there. And maybe because I have laid there as well. Maybe. But certainly because I'm there. So Jesus was about the business of this very well-known leader and going to his house and, and putting his hands on a little 12-year-old and bring this little girl back to life or to heal her or do something miraculous. He's in the business of that sort of thing. And in the midst of that, there's a big interruption. This woman comes into play. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. Oh, do I relate to many doctors. I think I have eight of them, the last count. I've never been fired by a doctor, but I've fired a couple. <laughs> she had spent all that she had, the scripture says, on those doctors. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew what? Sicker, worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. This is a powerful, powerful idea. Jesus going about with Jairus, a significant man, to his home, and in the midst of the crowd that was gathering because of Jesus' miracles and his ministry and, and wanting to be around him, she slips into this crowd. Not a penny in her pocket. No cure for her disease tried every superstition there was, and she was called unclean by the Jewish culture. Unclean. And when a woman has a discharge of blood, Leviticus reminds us, when she's had that for many days, then she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge. And when she's clean from her discharge, she must Count off seven days, and after that, she'll be ceremonial clean. And if you touch her during that time, you are unclean for the entire rest of the day. And everybody knows that. It's a small community. They'd seen her before. Well, they'd walked on the other side of the street. Because if you touched her, you're out of business for the day, and you lose your commerce. It's such an interruption to touch an unclean person. You can't go about your social agenda anymore. You, you are now being directed by the uncleanliness of the person whom you touched. No longer is it your agenda, it is the ceremonial agenda. The woman was untouchable. She risked that day. She risked the eutychus 
the ridicule because the people no doubt told her, stay away, stay away, you're unclean. Don't come into the crowd. You can't see Jesus. You know, Jesus is for us. He's for us. We're we're the clean ones. We go to synagogue every Friday night. We obey the law. You, woman, are unclean. You're untouchable. No, he's not for you. What is it that causes sickness? Is it sin? Is it just being human? In John, the ninth chapter, in the first couple of verses, Jesus had an encounter similar to this in some ways. And it says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed. First, is sickness sin or just the human condition? Or can it be either? Can it be either? Philip Yancey, in a book called Where is God When It Hurts? Incredible work. I, it's a significant book, and I do recommend it. Where is God When It Hurts? He reflects a little bit on Job in the Old Testament, and Job did not deserve all the illness that came his way, if you know the story. He had more pain than any human being could ever, ever have. He's the prototype of an innocent that was suffering. God could have laid his gentle hand upon him and healed him and lifted him out of that, but God did not. And if you read the 38th to the 41st verse of Job, you'll find out something. What was it that God was after with Job? God bombards him with a series of questions. And in the end, God wants one thing from Job. One thing. Simple trust. Simple trust. So Yancey says this about that. He says, until you know a little, it's his paraphrase of God. Until you know a little bit more about running the universe, (laughs) don't tell me. Don't we do that? I complain to God about illness and about sickness and about suffering and about all these things, about the women that have issues and and like this lady that came to Jesus that day or like the people that are grieving over the death of a little girl. And and as we prayed this morning for those pastors, uh, for that little, the pastor's uh, daughters and uh, daughter and and that granddaughter that passed away. What do you do with it? Rabbi Kushner wrote about it. He called it, when bad things happen to good people. He had had the loss of his son, so he was reflective upon this question. And, when, and he says this. He came to believe that God is good, and that's good for a rabbi. He also says that God hates suffering, and that's good. But here's the qualifier. He says, 
But God is simply not powerful enough to straighten out the problems of this world, problems like children suffering. And that's his conclusion. That's not what I read here. C.S. Lewis, that's the slide, uh, Becky. C.S. Lewis said something. He said this in, the, in a great classic that he wrote called The Problem of Pain. And he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, and shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Let's read that together. I want that to penetrate us. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Are we listening? Are we listening? One thing is certain, pain gets our undivided attention as in our story and in our tour this morning. And in our passage, we see that this woman is transfixed with her pain and suffering, totally focused on attempting to find healing. Nothing else mattered. She was at the bottom. Had she sinned? Probably not. How old was she? Well, she knows she was under 40, for people just lived to 40 in those days. It says that this had been going on for 12 years, and that would have, could have been the time when she started her own uh, development, and it's possible that she was in her early 20s. Maybe that makes sense. I don't know. Likely still young. What caused it? Don't know. Might have been able to diagnose it today. The fallen nature of humankind seems to be equated to sin, and it is. We understand that part. But what about healing? Is it a simple touch of Jesus that completes it all? Well, let's look at that. The 27th verse says, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his robe and touched his cloak. If only, if only I had enough faith, if only I could be cured, if only I could touch his robe, if only I could go to a certain meeting, if only I could be anointed by someone, if only, if only. You know, if she could get to this Jesus, this young woman might be able to, to marry that would have given her status. She, she might have been able to have a wedding and to dance at her own wedding. But that was an elusive dream because that wasn't going to happen. She had to get to Jesus or there'd be no dancing, there'd be no wedding, and there'd be no life. The garment that Jews wore in those days had a symbol on it that I'll not go into, but 
The symbol was to remind them of the commandments of the Lord. And we've been talking about the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, and that was a reminder to always keep those commandments in front of our children and our children's children. And they wore a robe that symbolized this. And so even the robe of a rabbi or of a Jewish man would have in it a, an item to remind them of these commandments and God's promise and covenant with the children of Israel, and that was all part of that. And she touched that robe. Could it heal her? The second fill-in or note that we're doing is on your outline is, is healing directly related to our faith? Apparently, in this case, it was. The 28th verse says, because she thought, if I could just touch his clothes, I'll be healed, and immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt her body was freed from suffering. Direct correlation. Dangerous area to get into. Some churches preach that we can actually have a meeting, and if we have a certain kind of meeting, you go to a certain kind of place that every single time we pray the prayer of faith, you will be healed. But, but, and I think I can say this, and I think many of you can too, but the absence of pain and suffering can also cheat us. Because being cheated of going through that process, there's so much to discover in pain and suffering. So much that cannot be experienced any other way. I, I wouldn't want that on any of you. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But when it happens, and if it does, it is God's megaphone. It does rouse the deafness in our ears. It tells us something is wrong, and we want to be close to the one who can heal us. It is pain that drives us to answers, and that's kind of what's happening here. Most remedies come out of personal crises. My mother had enough pain, uh, enough faith. I know she had a great deal of faith. She chose faith over medicine and a surgery she might have had, and she died. So was it a lack of faith? I don't think so. I don't. It's just the way it is. Some told her if she had enough faith, she'd be healed and didn't need the surgery, so she chose not to. was her choice. We supported that. So it's a mixed question. It's a strange one. In the case of our story here, faith directly related to her healing. So the third thing I want you to pay attention to is why is blood so important? And why was it the issue of blood that seemed to be the one that stood out in this particular passage? Because all the way through the Old Testament and the New, blood is the means by which the story of the atonement is told. You're going to receive upon uh, leaving, is that right, Aniko? Yeah. You're going to receive a copy of a, 
of a metaphor that Dr. James Miser and I wrote together that's the story of my physical illnesses as it relates to uh, the metaphor. It's a metaphor for the atonement, the at-one-ment with God, and how that works within the context of bo uh, bone marrow transplantation. And, and it's, it's, it's something I, I've given out once before, I think, but it just hit the, a big blog and a pretty big uh, theologian uh, named Scott McKnight has put it on his blog, so it's been getting some response. And in that response, we're hearing uh, people that relate to that. And it is true that all the way through the Old and the New Testaments, the blood is the means by which we understand it is life. My hemocologist at City of Hope can read my blood panel and know more about my body than if he went over my body inch by inch for an hour. He looks at the panel. It tells him the story, as it would yours. And it's about needing to reconcile with God. And it's about needing a new source of blood that is not contaminated with sin. It's about a redemptive work that is a flow of grace in our lives. That's what it's about. The fourth thing I want you to think about, and this is our concluding thought. If you could touch the hem of his garment, believing that you would be healed, what would that be? What do you desire more from Jesus than anything else? Now remember, this woman was desperate. And until she was desperate, nothing worked. When she was desperate, she chose to go to a source that she had not gone to before. She went directly to Jesus. It wasn't just touching the garment. Everyone was touching the garment. They were crowded around him. It was that he felt something when the woman of faith touched him. Do you know Jesus feels something when you touch him? He does. And in this case, it says, at once Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Seems like a silly question. Well, there's a slide. I want you to see this. This is a great quote. A guy named uh, John Taylor wrote this. The Holy Spirit is the force in the straining muscles of the arm, the film of sweat between pressed cheeks, the mingled wetness on the backs of clasped hands. He's as close and as unobtrusive as that and as irresistibly strong. Back to City of Hope, we've got to end this visit. We've been having with our friend. What do we do? Do we touch her? Do we embrace her? Do we say goodbye? Do we cry? What do we do? Do we ask God to heal her out of this horrible condition that doesn't seem to have any hope? How do we handle this? Do we abandon her into the hands of God? What do we do?
We touch her. We pray for her. We ask the Holy Spirit to move in her body and in her spirit. Does that mean she'll be healed? I don't know. I do not know. Be cautious of those that say they know. I don't. For me, I was. For a picture of a woman that I'm thinking of now, she wasn't. Not physically. So I don't know. But, but, I refuse to not be interrupted. when I need to be somewhere and touch somebody. Will you do that? If so, when we have our healing service in May, when Dr. Miser comes and, as a physician, talks to us about the healing of Scripture and of God, and through this process of close encounters, people's lives will be touched. Amazingly so. And there'll be more stories like the story of Beth Swanson. Yes. And so we'll continue our tour. This time it's through life. Let us prepare our hearts for receiving communion and be reminded of this holy moment. Let us pray. Father, I ask, as you wander in and out through the seats this morning and are with those that are on their vacation times during this holiday break, and the neighborhood all around us and the hospitals that are functioning at full capacity, and then someone here this morning that needs a special, unbelievable new touch that's crowding through the crowd just to simply say, I need something. And I need your power to come into my life in a refreshing way. Oh Jesus, may that happen. And as we take the elements this morning, do that. Do that for each of us. May there be a connection that is fresh We thank you in the risen name of Jesus. Amen.